0: Hello. Asia's economic dynamism, powerful demographics, growth and innovation all combine to make it attractive to investors at home and from around the world. Much of that story is dominated by China, of course, and people tend to focus on the region's emerging markets. But what about the rest, the developed economies of Asia-Pacific? They have well-established capital markets, high incomes, and can tap into the growth engines of the world on their doorsteps. In this episode, we're going to take a closer look at some of those countries to understand what it is they offer and what they can tell us about the future of the region. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity International's Asset Allocation Podcast. Joining me are Catherine Young, an investment director based in Hong Kong, Dale Nichols, a portfolio manager in Singapore, and speaking from Sydney in Australia is portfolio manager Paul Taylor. Hello and welcome to you all.
1: Hey, Richard.
2: Morning, good evening, Richard.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I feel a bit like that myself. Now, you're uh, spread out right across the Asia-Pacific region today, but uh, you all have Australian roots or close connections. And what I want to ask you, first of all, is what's the biggest misconception about Australia that those of us who don't have those roots might have?
1: I would say, Richard, it would be that we don't all live on either Ramsey Street or Summer Bay, which, of course, are famous because of neighbours and... Home and Away. I'm about to break into the theme songs now, aren't A <laughs> uh,
0: Good idea, Catherine, but I'm not sure we'll be able to get the rights for it. Um, Paul, what about you?
2: Yeah, Richard, I would say it's the fact that kangaroos don't jump down main streets of our cities. Uh, I think it's also that uh, the vast majority of Australians live on the coast in a major city and actually a small percentage of our population live, live in the country. So we're, we're viewed as more sort of pioneers in country, but we're really city urban dwellers. No kangaroos on the streets. Dale, what about you? What's the
0: biggest misconception you think?
3: I'd have to go with the fact that um, it seems when you're overseas, a lot of people think Foster's is, is Australia's beer that people drink the most. But, you know, at home, hardly anyone drinks it. It's only the and in the foreigners that really drink it. And, and I think all
0: of those ideas that you've put forward suggest the amazing PR or, or sort of soft diplomacy that Australia manages around the world. But uh, perhaps there's something we'll touch on uh, later on. But onto the main part of this discussion, because there's a new phase of the pandemic with enormous variation across the world. Some countries are charging ahead with vaccination programmes and opening up their economies, whilst others are experiencing their worst waves so far. Catherine, you talk to clients on a daily basis. What's on their minds at the moment?
1: It really is what you just mentioned in terms of the speed of an economies or a markets recovery. And over the past year and a half, we've really been looking at three key drivers for the market and directions of the market. So the flattening of the COVID curve, the pace and sustainability of a country's economic recovery, and policy response and implementation. And really, Richard, when you look across Asia Pacific, you know, it is not a homogenous region. We're seeing many, many countries really doing very well in terms of the flattening of the the COVID curve, in terms of um, really preventing mass breakouts or successful vaccination programs, albeit not as successful as I'd say the UK or the US at this point in time. But when we look across again the region, when you look at these three drivers, China really does stand out in terms of doing exceptionally well across all three catalysts. And so I guess the question that most people are asking now is, has China run its course, especially with the correction we have seen in that market, and where to next?
0: Okay, and where to next for Australia, Paul, because I mentioned that you're speaking from uh, the country, uh, which has done remarkably well during the pandemic. But the borders are closed and we recently heard that they're likely to remain closed, possibly until the end of next year, the end of 2022. Quite an extraordinary um, idea. What impact will that have?
2: Yes, we have fortress Australia here. And I guess that's, uh, you know, with an island nation, that's that's what can happen. And the population has been very happy that uh, we've really kept COVID out of Australia. But you're right. So where to where to from here? We can't just maintain this for the rest, rest of our lives. I, I think there's probably a couple of strategies. One is the vaccine. So that is now underway. I think we've got about 10% of the population vaccinated. As well as the vaccination, what we try to do is a few little travel bubbles, so we're linking with countries that have a similar positive environment or not you know very limited cases of covid. So Australia's now just opened up a travel bubble with New Zealand. So we can you can freely travel between Australia and New Zealand. They're potentially going to do that with Singapore and and basically go these sort of uh, bilateral agreements with countries that have a similar Uh, COVID environment you've mentioned there are two islands one of them is a bit bigger than the other
0: but they still don't have huge populations so even if there is um, travel between them um, that's not really going to revive Australia's tourism uh, for for example something which you know is a significant um, uh, part of the economy so what shape does
2: this leave um, Australia in well, it's really interesting, actually. So Australians have been big international travellers, but we can't travel anywhere at the moment. So what we're doing is we're exploring our own country. I, so, for instance, I've just with my family tried to book a holiday in the upcoming June school holidays. Everything's booked out, but that's other. I'm competing against other Australians who used to go to Europe, uh, go to the US in the in the summer of those markets. Now they can't go anywhere, so they're staying in Australia. So you've got this funny environment where actually a lot of mainstream tourism areas, actually you can't even get in because the domestic's uh, you know, focused on that. So there's a, a sort of self-sufficiency, perhaps, that's, um, that's developed.
0: It's really interesting. Uh, Dale, let me bring you in and um, sort of broaden the picture to the rest of the, the region, because Catherine touched on this, the um, great variation that there is um, looking at, uh, you know, China's recovery, and then you compare that with with India, which is in the, the, the throes of crisis at the moment. Do you think that like, the divergence that has emerged over the past year is going to have a lasting effect.
3: Yeah, it's sort of, you know, it's, I think your view can vary depending on how long you think the, the the virus is going to be around. I mean, you're right in saying China is very much back to normal. Um, our analysts on the ground are out meeting companies. Um, obviously, the vaccination process has been a bit slower, but I think that's because people are just so relaxed um, about things. The government's trying to push things along now. But, you know, if you had to bet on the surest recovery and sort of Path to normality from here would have to be it would have to, would have to be China. Um, obviously, as you've said, you know the likes of India are in in a, in a really a really tough spot right now. But I don't know. I, I I sort of bet on the resilience. I bet on the age. You know. So obviously, there's a lot of infection, but it's a very very young population. So you're going to have much lower death rates than you'll have um, in other countries. And with the sort of support that you're seeing globally now, I expect you know they'll they'll definitely come come through that. And I, I get that sense also and Paul and Catherine would agree when you're talking to colleagues on the ground when we're doing calls there's a they're in a tough spot but they're fighting it they're getting a lot of a lot more global support now so you know I wouldn't be betting against a lot of the companies uh, in India for the long term
0: so a path to recovery, perhaps at a different um, pace to, um, um, to other parts. OK, well, let's um, step back from that picture for a moment to hear how Fidelity's core allocation is positioned. I caught up with the Global Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey, a little bit earlier, and despite a disaster unfolding in some parts of the world, as we've touched on, markets in general are taking it in their stride. I started by asking him if that optimism was misplaced.
4: Well, I think that uh, it's been quite right that we've had this optimism flow through, Mike, because of the uh, level of, you know, just the, the bounce back that we've seen in economic um, activity, uh, the amount of stimulus that we've seen support uh, the economies that generate, uh, that to generate that to date. And I think also that the calming down in the treasury market is important um, because you know, we were getting into a uh, sort of you know, fear factor stage that was starting to drive uh, you know, a number of different sort of feedback loops that could have been more dangerous. Now, I think the challenge is that, are we getting close to some of the, the best from that you know, in terms of two things? One, the amount of the, uh, the bounce back and the follow through into this sort of mini boom and secondly, the way in which the markets are discounting that, and I think that uh, you know we are seeing signs where we've had you know, significant rotation, we've had significant level of expectation of how this uh, mini boom will feed through into uh, to earnings and into um, the activity to follow, and some of that I think that um, you know there's still some question marks about how much is delivered against that level of, of expectation.
0: Let's talk then about the, the, the core allocation, the Fidelity's core allocation, which is the aggregate starting point for asset allocation decisions that Fidelity takes across the asset classes. The sensitivity in markets, um, you know, they, they, they seem a little bit fragile. So how, how have you reacted in the way that you're, you're positioning?
4: Well, I think that, you know, it's important to look at, you know, where we come from, that, um, you know, still very much with a constructive view, with a, a risk on type uh, exposure. So, uh, having a positive equities uh, view, positive uh, allocation profile relative to, a sort of, you know, that, um, more strategic and benchmark, um, position. Credit, an important part where we've had, you know, significant overweight exposure through the course of the last uh, year, that most probably now looking to have that as more neutral. And so uh, the balance of where we're having um, uh, exposure and a bias towards uh, certain parts of of the sort of high yield um, environment and where we've been very positive on uh, Asia, as an example, that being balanced out overall across a global um, picture that uh, to bring it to a more neutral um, perspective. But then the other part where really we're reflecting, you know, in a very tentative way so far, but possibly to increase more, it's just taking cash to a more neutral position.
0: And and that's probably the most eye-catching change, I think, from from last month, isn't it? That move from underweight to neutral on cash.
4: Uh, Yes, it's, um, uh, again, in the scheme of things, it's still only a, a small step, but it is something that I think reflects that view that, you know, just that little bit more caution as we've seen, discounting in markets the, the valuation profiles that we see that we feel stretched and also some of the dynamics in terms of the uh, both the technicals and the fundamentals um, uh, that's seen you know very much stretched markets and sentiment very stretched the
0: u.s outlook does still look um, pretty strong because uh, of that that enormous fiscal program that president biden has uh, has unveiled but on the other side uh, the flip side of that is a growing deficit which seems likely to contribute to a weaker Dollar. Now, that's usually good for emerging markets, but how much will they benefit from that in the face of the COVID um, challenges, which are sweeping so many countries?
4: Yes, I think it's a much more complex picture as a, as a consequence. The dollar and, and the flow out of that dollar liquidity, you know, we've spoken about many times in the past as being a constructive uh, element, but I think there's a couple of things. Again, this goes back to being slightly more selective, and and why, as an example, we're more constructive on uh, sort of Japan equities and the the pro uh the global trade um, profile for for those, but maybe a little bit more um, neutral now on the broader EM uh, equities suite because you are seeing some of these countries being impacted more by domestic concerns. Now, part of that is linked to what we're seeing in the um, uh, outbreak still of, uh, of COVID and the challenges there. Part of it as well is the degree to which um, uh, you've seen not naturally getting uh, the benefits from some of the, the trade pickup.
0: You mentioned being more positive on uh, Japanese equities. Can you explain a little bit more about uh, the reasons behind that? You, you definitely seem to be building some conviction there.
4: Japan you know, is suffering still from many years of, of being the forgotten country because of you know the many years of deflation, of the many years of domestic intervention in policy terms not being seen to uh, to have maybe the, the same impact in terms of generating growth and pickup in and signs of uh, inflation. What I think has been really interesting is that in the background all through this is that you know ever since Premier Abe, there really was a change in the dynamics. But most importantly, you've seen. Also, that the earnings profile has continued to uh, improve substantially. You've seen also the level of innovation in Japan has started to really um, uh, develop and, and sort of happen below the surface um, in many ways. Um, and you've seen many of the sort of criteria for Japan being you know, lots of the value orientated um, uh, sort of side of the, the trade equation um, from a market sense you know, also improve. Well, let's
0: hope it stays that way. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. That was Andrew McCaffrey, Fidelity's Global Chief Investment Officer, talking to me earlier. You can hear the full interview with Andrew on the Rich Pickings podcast. Now, Catherine, Andrew was talking there about the the flow of liquidity from the US easing a little bit. How much of an impact do foreign investors have on the Asia Pacific region?
1: It's really interesting, Richard, because over the years, because of the growing middle class, urbanisation, higher incomes around the Asia Pacific region, especially emerging Asia, we're seeing the makeup of the market change. So a lot of retail investors are now participating, which has its pros and its cons. So the pros side of the thing of the situation is that we're not as dependent from a foreign perspective. So you don't see those big flight to quality moves that we used to see historically. The negative aspect about this is especially over 2020, big retail investors, i.e. the makeup of turnovers increase from about 70% to 90% in markets such as Taiwan, Korea, China even. You're seeing these retail investors chase certain themes or certain stocks which has really then seen this crowded trade emerge in the region, especially in certain markets, whereby you have really stretched multiples, again, in certain industries across certain names at the expense of names which are just being completely ignored, despite really attractive fundamentals.
0: So a different perspective on investment than if it's um, uh, being driven by, by local buying. Paul, um, Andrew was talking there about a new note of caution in the core allocation. He was talking about stretch valuations as well as a, as a red flag. Now, we know that's been of concern in the US market for some time. Are you worried about Australia?
2: Um, I, I guess it's fair to say <laughs> valuations are a lot more expensive than they were 12 months ago. So uh, I know right at the start of the pandemic, we were. Everyone was asking, what sort of recovery is this? Is this a, is this a W? Is this a Z? Is this a N? Uh, every alphabet. You know, or worse still, is this an L where it doesn't recover? But I think now, quite clearly, it's a very aggressive V. So we've regained all of it. And I think um, in Australia, we're basically back at all time highs. When we're still probably not out of the, you know, not out of the pandemic yet. Although, obviously, things are looking a lot better, and we do have a have a recovery. So it's it's fair to say, you know, it's just it's just not as attractive a valuation as it today as it was as it was a year ago. But but having said that, you know, there's still a lot of uh, tailwinds behind us in both sort of monetary stimulus, fiscal stimulus, the economy has performed so much better than expected unemployment is coming down again we're seeing some of the, i think with the growth that we're going to see in australia uh this year uh we haven't seen for you know something like 20 or 30 years so very strong growth
0: so over the short term you sound pretty bullish but over the more medium term do you share andrew's caution that has gone into that core allocation
2: Look, I—it's actually probably a little bit the other way around. So Australia is the best-performing market in the world over the long term. Australia's often called a workhorse; it's not a racehorse. You'll never see the Australian stock market being the best-performing market in a one-year period. It just doesn't—you know—it sort of does its twelve to fifteen percent every year. Uh, now, when you do that, you're never going to be the best-performing market that year. But if you do it every year for 100 years, you're going to be the best-performing market in the world. And that's what that's what happened to Australia. So, And if you look at what the fundamental trends that underpin that, population growth. So for the last 100 years, Australia's population has grown at 2% per year, which is about five times the OECD average. Right? So it's, it's a new world country, strong population growth. That means more goods, more services, more houses. Uh, that's structurally underpins the market top of that just happened to be lucky enough to have excellent natural resource base and really importantly low cost natural resource base which is the key thing so the tons mined in australia has never really gone down and that's because we've got the low cost production so there's always an incentive to expand so
0: is is australia then the exception to the caution that Andrew, who of course is a global CIO, he's got a um, perhaps a different perspective. Is that is that perhaps how you would position it?
2: I think what he's cautioning is the short term. He's saying we're sort of you know extended, and the the arguments I'm making are sort of longer term arguments. When people looked at the markets right around the world, they found the best correlation of all the markets is the dividend yield of that market plus the real growth in dividends. And Australia has the high, you know, one of the highest yields and one of the highest real growth in dividends. So I, I guess I'm arguing that the long-term workhorse is still very much in place, and those trends that have driven that are, are still there for the future. In the short term, you've just got to be a little bit careful, but the, but the longer terms, it looks very positive. I like the, uh, the workhorse uh, analogy. Well, Dale, coming back to Andrew
0: McCaffrey, he was pretty positive about Japan as well. Now, that's a market that you know very well. You spent a good proportion of your career working there. So what's your current exposure to that market and why?
3: Uh, it's moving up. Uh, so you know, having sort of invested in a Pacific mandate for quite a while, I've generally been I'm under, underweight Japan, and I'm actually still underweight. But the underweight's the smallest it's been in in many years. It's a big market. Um, there's obviously you know the demographic challenges and that sort of thing. And there's big parts of the market that I think you can you can ignore areas like utilities and, and things like that. It's it's sort of hard to build a bold case, but it's definitely becoming more interesting obviously you know the value that we talked about is there a lot of a lot of cash on balance sheets you're probably looking at sort of half the market net cash and you know relatively you know relatively cheap valuations sort of uh, for the for the market overall but there's some i think there's some other things that are, that are, you know, definitely we're seeing, you know, sort of come through as well. I'd, as a young analyst in Japan, the whole issue of corporate governance was always a challenge and just sort of how much shareholder return you can expect as an investor was always a really challenging conversation when you, you, know, you get through the fundamentals and you look at the balance sheet and look at the sort of investment options and you'd ask sort of what sort of capital could be coming back to you as a shareholder. And there wasn't a lot of sophistication in the answer. That's really changed over the past few years. Paul was talking about growth in dividends, I would I would say probably Japan is the market where you're gonna see probably the strongest growth, at least amongst the developed markets, growth in dividends that you'll see across many countries. And the power of the balance sheet is there. Like I said, there's a lot of cash on balance sheets, there's a lot of really cash generative good, good businesses that might not have the growth, you know, options that you have in a market like China. So there's, there's real potential for that to come back to you as a shareholder. And we're seeing that come through in the conversations with companies. Any particular sectors that are catching your eye? Um, it's really across the board. There's a lot of sectors that that are generating a lot of cash. Um, what I would say is that, you know, in addition to what i said about sort of that general theme around capital return, there's, there's, there's real change, I feel, you know, in just in sort of general, general entrepreneurship, um, and sort of, you know this shift to digital that that we're seeing across the world and has been accelerated by COVID. My sense is that is is happening faster in Japan. Again, sort of from a low base, it feels like it's been the catalyst for for, for a lot of change in areas like e-commerce. You've got probably the lowest. Penetration across you know developed markets definitely compared to a place like China,
0: which sounds which sounds surprising actually because you would sort of think Japan super electronic um, uh, developments there you know the home of um, of um, so many inventions and yet you say very low penetration.
3: Not when it comes to digital on hard on the hardware side definitely, but in terms of software that take up of digital um, there's still you know massive use of cash, so you're seeing that shift to. To online payments that sort of thing and and i think also you're seeing it you know definitely at the the corporate level as well so the shift to the cloud benefiting companies in areas like enterprise software and things like that you're seeing those those sorts of areas have got a feels like a huge amount of momentum. We're seeing a lot of sort of young companies and young entrepreneurs come through. What's the trigger for new
0: companies? Again, it's not something I think of with Japan. You were talking about the problems with governance. You know, it's often felt like a, an economy that's um slightly ossified. So what what's the the new enthusiasm? The new entrepreneurialism?
3: It's hard to know. I mean, that I mean to be honest, I mean these trends are sort of probably underway before COVID. But again, it's that it's that acceleration and. You know, it's like a lot of economies you see when when you're starting from a very low point, just that low point and seeing what's happening elsewhere in the world can be that catalyst to really move. Um, You know, you know, in Japan, you've got these hunkos, these stamps, you know, that you're stamping, you know, actual paper documents to get things approved. Obviously, you know, that's something that has to disappear and you're seeing that get digitalized now. So, again, for long term Japan watchers, that's exciting seeing that sort of that sort of change. Um, and then obviously, again, with, with COVID being stuck at home, obviously, that's been a catalyst. And I think people have realized the convenience of being able to, to buy online. So I think, you know, it's, it's accelerating. I think it's, it's actually got, got, got a long way to run.
0: And Catherine, um, when you hear about those sorts of opportunities in in Japan, you know big changes going on. How does that compare with China, which you know, as we said right at the beginning, is the is the country that um, seems to be hogging the limelight in uh, in Asia Pacific at the moment?
1: Well, well, Dale knows this because I nag him all the time about his stories. But after spending so many years doing what he's doing and identifying investment opportunities and and you know really assessing corporate management teams, fascinating how you know whether it's Korea. Taiwan, his experience in Japan, obviously now China, and then you look more at the frontier markets such as Vietnam, identifying the trends that we have seen in certain markets and whether they play out in other markets. And it's not just Dell, a number of our PMs or portfolio managers look at this, but it's just, you know, as I said, everyone seems to think that Asia is homogenous and it's it's far from a homogenous region. You know I always think it's fascinating you know when when Dell talks about a place like Japan, again, I just think of it as you know old school Japan when in fact, there's so much innovation coming through, whether it's in the private equity space or smaller companies um that people just don't even recognize at this junction. you know again, it's not just about China, even though China tends to dominate so much news flow
0: so how would you advise investors to get a handle on this on on the um, lack of homogeneity, very different characters of uh, of the economies.
1: A place like Asia, again, it, it, it tends to boil down to active management and identifying these opportunities that um, that most people aren't yet finding. So it's not just about the big names, uh, but you know, a, again, being half Australian and half Chinese. What I think is a, a bit of a contrarian theme. But something that investors should monitor or watch out for is this growing dividend yield that we are seeing in China. So, you know, Paul, Paul and Dale are both aware about how Australian investors, retail or institutional investors, are obsessed with the dividend yield and income in Australia. And Australia is well known to be one of the highest, if not the highest paying dividend market in the world. China, because of a change we're seeing with the regulatory environment and this focus on improving governance, a bit like how Dell was talking about Japan, China from a, an absolute and a relative sense has really been the, the, or really has seen the biggest improvement over the past couple of years. And so, again, as you see this middle class continue to grow, as you see the Chinese government roll out a pension scheme akin to, let's say, Australia's superannuation or the UK pension scheme, you know, you're going to have more and more capital going into the household. And at this juncture, the asset allocation choices are quite limited in China, right? It's either putting your money in a bank, property, it's quite restrictive given measures. And therefore, I go back to this, you know, the changing dynamic of capital markets across Asia, especially China. And therefore, Chinese investors not looking at the Chinese equities market very short term, but in more of a long term way, and it's the total return. So potential capital appreciation coupled with potential income.
0: And Paul, I mean, I've often wondered whether it makes sense whether Australia is grouped together with the rest of Asia Pacific. I mean, it's sort of in the right hemisphere, um, but um, it's felt quite different. But actually, from the way Catherine's talking, it sounds like the, the you know there is a, a similarity building um, between Australia and and some
2: other markets. It's a you know it's a good it's a good point. I think you can argue both ways. Australia's got a lot of similarities to Europe and the US, but. Um, we are very much connected to Asia, and um, you know, Asia is some of our biggest uh, trading partners. And if you, even if you just look at China and Australia, China, the Chinese economy and the Australian economy are incredibly complementary. Our big exports are primary industries. Uh, so our biggest export from Australia is iron ore, which is which is straight up to China, uh, and our second biggest export is education, which is a lot of uh, Chinese and Indian. Uh, students coming down and getting educated in our, in our universities, but China's biggest export is their manufacturing sector. So we buy, we, and Australia has a very small manufacturing sector. So we we're selling primary and tertiary to China. They're selling us, they're selling us secondary, and the economies really work together. And in fact, you could argue that uh, you know Australia has done very well. Basically, you know, the coattails of China as well. So, a lot of our success has been linked to the Asian growth story. Does that mean that Australia's um, not much more
0: than a load of big banks and uh, and miners? Is, is that how you'd characterise it? Is that fair?
2: Uh, no, I don't think that's fair. Maybe that's another misconception as well. Um, but now Australia is a very good diversified market. So, a lot of our best performing stocks have been in the healthcare, as an example. So. CSL, which is one of our leading companies, uh, you know, fractionates blood plasma, and that's been very successful. And they're a global leader in that. Um, They also came up with the HPV vaccine, which has has been eliminating cervical cancer. Cochlear implants that was uh, that was invented in Australia. Cochlear have like eighty percent mark global market share in that in in terms of the healthcare as well. Uh, But financial services, so banks, yes, but also. Um, you know, as Catherine talked about the superannuation system in Australia, which is a mandated pension system that, at the moment, nine and a half percent of everybody's salary, because the, the the actual pensions are individual; they're not they're not group based. And uh, because of that, you know, Australia punches way above its weight in the pension system. So we've got the fourth largest pension system in in the world. But yet we're, you know, we. I think we were about two percent of the world's population.
0: Dale, do those um, other sectors catch your eye um, for the for the funds that you manage? Yeah,
3: absolutely. I was just to, just about to jump in and support um, on the, on on that front, particularly on healthcare. And, you know, I, I tend to be operating more at the smaller end of town. But there's just a huge amount of, of really interesting companies that are doing potentially sort of groundbreaking stuff. You know, at the early stage in in healthcare. Uh, Um, in Australia. A lot of it's coming out of the universities or CSIRO, but there's a lot of really interesting technologies. And it's great that you have the likes of CSL as sort of uh, the trailblazer in terms of companies that can truly, you know, take great technology and go global. So, yeah, we're definitely spending more time looking at the smaller end of town um, in Australia in healthcare. Software as well, I'd say there's some emerging, you know, interesting software companies as well, but um, definitely healthcare is an area that we just see a a lot of activity as well.
0: And any surprises? Um, we've we've that's been a sort of theme throughout this uh, this discussion, perhaps. But um, any surprises when you look at at companies? I mean, you are Australian. You obviously look at a much broader um, universe of um, of companies than um, than that.
3: But um, anything that has taken you aback? Um, first of all, I'd say the general resilience of companies through COVID, and I'd say particularly in China. I was amazed, you know, when because obviously things started there. And just the, the attitude of companies, you know, one, to, to meet with us and, you know, being able to, to run meetings online and and just sort of react to that. But just the, the get on with it attitude of, of companies. And that's, I think, what partly drove, you know, such a fast recovery. Uh, just the resilience, um, I'd say, particularly in China of companies to accept the challenges, you know, to adjust strategy where needed and and to get on with it. And I think that's, again, probably what's driven a lot of the recovery there.
1: Actually, Dale, remember way back when uh, um, when it was particularly bad in China, at the peak of the the virus, and, and we had that meeting with the auto dealership, and the management team were talking about this this concept of pent-up demand. And I remember thinking, if this is going to happen, and fair enough, it happened, didn't it?
3: Yeah. yeah I mean, he was looking at it, and he's a, he's a, he runs a really successful business, but he was looking at it as an opportunity. The competition struggling, and I think his words were, we're going to eat their lunch, which they were already doing, but... Um, he was he was really looking at it as, uh, as 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 an opportunity. And Catherine, what trends
0: do you think COVID, which has you know upset so many things, and yet has really put momentum behind other new trends? Um, which ones do you think will be the ones that we should we should notice um, in the in the years come?
1: Well, the obvious trend from a sector perspective or industry perspective is this whole acceleration of of buying goods and services online, so e-commerce, and the whole notion about social commerce being the next wave of e-commerce given that, especially in China, we're seeing a lot of regulatory changes when it comes to the tech sector relating to e-commerce. But a broader theme that's really developing and, and is getting a lot of airtime with, with clients, globally, that is, is how we look at Asia going forward. And so, you know, you mentioned to Paul about whether we should include Australia in, in our Asia-Pacific portfolios. Usually it's ex-Japan, which is even more interesting when you have someone like Dale who looks at the entire region But a lot of people are now talking about, given China's allocation and growing allocation in indices, whether we'll be in a world in the not-too-distant future where it's Asia, ex-China, ex-Japan. So China almost becomes a standalone and follows a trend that we have been seeing in Japan. And again, someone like Dale is probably better positioned in terms of, you know, identifying those trends when we do see this kind of strategic allocation decision.
3: So I should give the last word on this to you, Dale. Yeah, I think I, I mean I, I mean I'm obviously biased because I've been running a Pacific mandate for so long, but I think it makes complete sense to look at it as one region. Um, obviously, China will get bigger over time. That's no question. In fact, you know the shift in allocation to China, I think, will be the biggest geographical shift we see in markets over the next decade. That's it's you know it, it will just it's it's hugely underrepresented still relative to its portion of global GDP. So that you know that will continue, but. You know, the rest of the region, when we're talking to companies, whereas 10 years ago, they may have been focused on US or European markets, they're focused on Asia. And that's where the competition's coming, you know, coming from as well. Obviously, you know, you've got a technical lead in many sectors from the likes of Japan and Korea, but Japan and China's catching up. And so, you know, when you think about competition, you're comparing intra-region as well. It really makes sense to, to look at the, the region together. And... You know, what a great combination when you can have the sort of the strong demographics and, and sort of emerging growth that you see are the likes of the Indias, the Indonesias, the Philippines, etc., versus perhaps a more of a, a value orientation and, and, you know, corporate governance change story out of the likes of Japan. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a really, you know, it's a really attractive region in general. Now it is time to play the
0: rich pickings parlor game that is hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake and what would you drop like a hot potato? Paul, I'm going to come to you first. What would
2: you buy like a hot cake? Uh, buy like a hot cake, I would buy pizza like a hot cake. Now, it's bigger <laughs> than it's bigger than pizza, but you know, you talk about the trends that have accelerated through COVID. One of the trends that has that was happening pre COVID and has accelerated through COVID is the digital delivery of food and beverage. So people want their food when they want it, where they want it, um, and that has, you know pizza is is one of those ones that transports really well. If you can get a piping hot, fresh, beautiful pizza to your home to wherever you are in fifteen minutes, and this is why we love the sort of vertically integrated model um, that that to me is a real winner. Uh,
0: my, my son is definitely part of that um, trend. He loves the app of one well-known uh, pizza manufacturer. Um, what about your hot potatoes? What would you drop?
2: Probably the thing I'd drop would be cryptocurrencies. Now, that's not saying I don't. I mean, I think um, blockchain is a fantastic technology. I think that the cryptocurrencies are here to stay and they're, they're going to be a way that we you know, transact online, because as you're saying, e-commerce is a big part of it. I just think there's going to be a lot more competition. Central banks themselves will set up their own cryptocurrencies probably. Um, There's no reason why one individual cryptocurrency should be, you know, should go through the roof. At at best, it's a transmission mechanism between uh, buying and selling goods. So I think they'll serve a really important purpose. I just don't think people should look at them at the actual crypto in individual cryptocurrency as a long-term investment. Dale, how about you? What's your hot cake?
3: My hot cake would be e-commerce in Japan. And it's, you know, partly for the reasons that we talked about, the low base and that shift really happening, but the other big factor is valuation. You know, these are these are companies, you know, in many cases that trade at, you know, significant discounts to, you know, in terms of market cap to much smaller countries with already higher penetration of uh, of e-commerce. And a lot of them have been through a bit of a tough phase where they've been investing heavily, competing with the likes of Amazon, but are showing signs of of really catching up. Now's the time, okay? And your hot potatoes, what would you drop? Yeah, I, I, you know, there's we, we talked at the outset about some sort of overly, you know, stretched parts of the market and sort of hype driven, and I, I would go with the with the electric vehicle space in China actually. And I'm a huge believer in in EVs. I think you know the penetration. We, we're just at that point of the S-curve, We're going to see massive penetration, but. When I'm seeing companies, you know, valued up to hundred billion dollars, you know, sort of number three globally, bigger than the likes of, of GM and Daimler, maybe just a little bit too much is getting is getting is getting priced in. So that's the area that uh, that I'd be cautious on. Makes sense. Um, and
0: finally, Catherine, let's come to you. Your hot cakes. What are you buying?
1: So I'm going to go contrarian income, smaller companies, names which really haven't participated in that huge momentum, overcrowded trade that we have seen over the past year and a half, which is starting to kind of unwind in certain markets.
0: Okay, and uh, hot potatoes?
1: It must be because it's nearly dinner time here because I was just thinking after we were talking about pizza, <laughs> uh, you know, last year, the end of last year, and Dale, you probably know this story, in korea there was an ipo that was 1300 times uh, oversubscribed and it was a fried chicken franchise so that whole again you know really crowded retail driven thematic area i would tend to stay away from at this juncture especially with you know again in the market like korea they've just started to unwind their partial um, short selling ban that they had in place And so I think, you know, the direction can go up and down. A lot of people just think it goes in one direction.
0: Sage words to end on. Thank you very much indeed, Catherine, along with the fried chicken warning. (laughs) Um, That brings us to the end of this episode. If you want to hear more Asia-related investment talk, you can tune into our award-winning Investor's Guide to China podcast, or for any number of other topics, just subscribe to Rich Pickings or Fidelity Answers. You can search for those titles on your podcast app. You can also find further reading on any of the above at Fidelity. International.com. Thank you to my guests, Catherine Young, Paul Taylor, Del Nichols, and Andrew McCaffrey. The producer is Seb Morton Clark, with technical support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. <laughs>